Good morning. It's good to be here. I'm just getting my, my uh, stuff set up here, ready to roll. Uh, exciting morning. It's kind of fall kickoff. It's uh, back to school. It is uh, the beginning of a new sermon series. Uh, a lot to be excited about. Cold weather. You get to put on a long sleeve shirt and maybe even a jacket this morning and not get smoked out here in a uh, Sunday morning as we gather together in this hot room. So, hey, a lot to be excited about. Even more so, we get to put our nose in the Word of God together and, and be helped through that. So I'm, I'm grateful, uh, I'm excited that I get to open up the Gospel of Matthew and look at chapter 1 together uh, with you. So, oh, we need the Lord's help. We want this time to be profitable for us. Um, if you're new here at Summit, just so you know, we, we, ca- we are a church that cares a lot about the Word of God. We want to walk carefully through the Word of God, book by book, expositionally. We want to carefully work our way through the text. We also want to get through all of Scripture, so we want to move through the text, right? And sometimes you'll find that as we're going through a book, we're going to go through Matthew over the next, Ben said, months, maybe even year or more. Um, we might pause here and there to, to, to talk about a particular issue, a particular topic from the Word of God, uh, and then jump back into a book. And so we weave in and out of expositional preaching here. We care about that a lot. We believe that's where we hear God's voice, um, not in our bellies, right, but through the Word of God. And, uh, and he actually, we not only hear him, but he actually powerfully feeds us through the hearing of the Word of God, particularly when it's centered on his son Jesus and on his gospel message. Amen? So that's, what we, that's how we want to look at, at Matthew over the next several months. Uh, now Matthew's one of four gospels, and uh, the New Testament opens with four different accounts of the life and the teachings, the ministry, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus Christ, God's Son. And Matthew's the first of those four accounts in the New Testament. Now, people often ask that question, why are there four different uh, uh, biographies, so to speak, of Matthew's life? Why wasn't one good enough? And it's often said that each one emphasized something different about the life of Jesus. Each one highlights different themes uh, that can be pulled out from the life and teachings and death and resurrection of Jesus. So you'll hear uh, the, the gospel according to Luke focuses on the poor and the way Jesus kind of flips everything upside down. Uh, the gospel of Mark, you'll hear people say, it, and these are true, there's a lot more to these gospels than this, but the, the, often the emphasis that's marked out in the, the gospel according to Mark is discipleship. This is what it means to, to follow Jesus. This is what it means to follow him in light of his life, death, and resurrection. Uh, the gospel of John is a heavy emphasis on the glory of Jesus, on the theology of Jesus, on the eternality of Jesus as the word of God made flesh. And then quite often what happens is when you get to Matthew, people say, oh, well, it's kind of a Jewish gospel. And well, it's, it's, it's an interesting way to phrase it because Matthew, it's true that more than any other gospel uh, quotes the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures. It highlights the, the, the Old Testament. It shows how all these scriptures has, have been in some way fulfilled in Jesus or in the church. So, but it's often framed very simplistically, I think, as, as the Jewish gospel. What that ends up doing 
is it ends up making us feel like I, I ought not to be interested in Matthew unless I'm, I'm kind of a, a Bible nerd, right? Unless I'm an Old Testament nerd that wants to see all the, all the connections between the Old Testament and the New Testament. That's why you go to Matthew. Or by framing it simply as the Jewish gospel, you might think, I'm not Jewish. Maybe this just isn't for me. It feels like there's, there's this distance for non-Jewish people, like maybe the majority of us in this room, and Matthew's highly Jewish gospel were for his Jewish audience. And so I think, I don't know if this has been your experience, but I think quite often I feel a little bit like, gosh, I don't, I mean, it feels, Matthew feels a little mathematical. It feels a little formulaic. It feels like there's a lot of like Old Testament stuff going on. And so I'm not quite sure how it relates to me. So I think there's a, maybe a better way to frame it. For sure, Matthew is very intrigued, very interested in how Jesus relates to the Old Testament. But I think the setting for understanding Matthew is going to help us understand how we can benefit from it. So Matthew is writing to a largely Jewish audience. By Jewish, I mean Jewish Christian. Okay, these are Jewish believers in Jesus. And around the time that Matthew was crafted, composed, written and edited by Matthew. He's, he's preparing this document to hand over to the Christian community. What's going on around that time, maybe after the destruction of the temple in AD 70, maybe just before it. But already you have this, this phenomenon that's happening in the Christian community where these Jewish believers in Jesus are feeling increasingly marginalized from their Jewish ancestors, from the, the Jewish community in which they came. See, the, they were deeply indebted to the, the Jewish culture. It was their world. The Jewish religion was their world. The Jewish people were their family. And all of a sudden, they're, they're now identifying with this, this new community of people, followers of Jesus, the guy who was crucified and resurrected. And so there's this, if, 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 the, if the crucifixion of Jesus tells you anything about what the future of Jewish-Christian relations might look like, what, what that means is that the community that Matthew's writing to is feeling like they, they've been separated out from the culture that they feel so at home with, from their, from their Jewish roots. And they, they, they find themselves bound up with this new community that's, that has these pretty amazing claims about itself. They're, they're claiming this Christian community, this Jewish Christian community, is claiming to be God's chosen people. Believers in Jesus, as they rally together on the Lord's Day every week, they're claiming to be the, the privileged, special people of God. And I, I, I could imagine that as the, as the resurrection of Jesus is maybe fresh in their memory, this might be exciting, right? Man, we're part of this, this new thing that God's doing. But Jesus has now ascended into heaven, and as his resurrection fades into the background, and what they feel more poignantly is his absence rather than his presence, they, I, I imagine they look around and they say, I'm disconnected from family I'm disconnected from my culture. I'm increasingly marginalized by everything that I knew as a, as a child. And I'm, 
I'm, I'm attaching myself, I'm, I'm hitching my wagon to this thing called the church. And you know what? Sometimes it feels a little crazy. Sometimes I don't know exactly what's going on. Sometimes I don't know exactly why I'm doing this. In the late 1800s, there was a, a, a Jew... Jewish man living in Vienna, and he, uh, through Scottish Presbyterians and their ministry of preaching the gospel, he came to faith in Jesus. And uh, Alfred, uh, excuse me, Alfred Edersheim, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his last name correctly, but Alfred Edersheim was a, he's a renowned uh, New Testament scholar. He just gave his life to the study of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And as a he he grew up thoroughly Jewish in culture, studied the the Torah, went to Hebrew school, and came to faith in Jesus and dedicated his life to the study of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John ended up writing a famous book called "The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah." And when when asked um, what he was doing in spending so much of his life on this work, he said that this, this work, the life and times of Jesus the Messiah, isn't just a defense of Jesus. It's not just a defense of Christianity. He called it an ap- apologia pro vita mea. And that in Latin means a defense for my life. A defense for my life. I think growing up thoroughly Jewish as he did, converting to Christ, I mean, he felt disoriented at times by the the claims that now in the church, all of God's purposes are being fulfilled. And this it, 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 it's, it's just shocking to think sometimes, like you're looking around at the world around you, you're saying, "Really, is this really what I believe?" That. That, that all of God's blessing is, 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 is funneled somehow, concentrated, focused here in the church in some unique way. Well, friends, our, our context isn't all that different, different from Alfred's as well. Um, we live in a context where religious pluralism and postmodern relativism really win the day. What are, those are kind of big, fancy words, but in short... Uh, with those relig- religious pluralism, we live in this time where there are so many different religions, there are so many different worldviews, there are so many different philosophies for what everything means, that to believe one over against another it seems to be the height of arrogance. It's, it's believed today that the, the mere existence of multiple major religions and multiple philosophies means that none of them is right. That's the belief of religious pluralism. Because there's so many, none of them can be right. Or they all just have like just a piece of the truth. Everyone's got like an equal portion of the truth. And so the the claims that God has revealed Himself in Jesus and that He is in some special way connected to the 
church that gathers itself and joins itself to the Lord Jesus seems increasingly audacious in our day. We seem a little bit crazy to believe that uh, postmodern relativism just is the, is, is the assertion, it's the belief today that, that we can't actually know anything, can we? Who's to, who's to say we can actually believe that God, one, has revealed Himself, two, in Jesus, three, and continues to act in the church, four? I mean, these are audacious claims in light of this kind of postmodern skepticism that, I mean, postmodern relativism is this belief that, hey, we're, we're past this age where we're, we're, we're super confident in things, all right? We know too much to be confident really about anything. And I mean, every, every truth, claim, truth claim is really just a grab for power, isn't it? And so the, the belief that Jesus has somehow been been disclosed by God as His Son and that the church is His body, uh, when we feel we were swimming in the ocean of, of postmodern relativism, the, 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 the certainty of who Jesus is just sometimes feels like, wow. Because the, the, the postmodern relativism not only says that you can't know, but if you claim to know that Jesus really is the way, the truth, and the life, it, it's not just absurd, it's, it's immoral of you to believe those things. And so I don't know about you, but from time to time, I feel, as I look around, my feet aren't underneath me, I can look around at all those things and think, what is this? What is this that I believe? This is, it's, it's pretty incredible. Well, friends, what we feel, what, what Alfred felt in the late 1800s, and what the, the community that Matthew was writing to in the late first century is the same. Are we crazy? Are we crazy to hitch our wagon to this thing called the church? Is, is God really behind this? In Matthew's answer in writing 28 chapters is yes. Yes, God is really behind this thing called the gathered church. God really is behind this thing called the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what Matthew does is he he spends 28 chapters pointing not to the church, but to the Lord of the church. And he, he points us, he directs our attention away from ourselves as we look over church history and we see the sometimes sad humanity and fallenness of the church as an institution. He lifts our head up from the church and points us to the head of the church, the head of her body. And we see, even in chapter 1, that God really has done something, not just in the church, but in Jesus Christ. And we see three things about Jesus in this chapter that's going to make us feel like we're not crazy to follow Him. We're not crazy to live on mission for Him. We're not crazy. We're not foolish. We're not unwise to trust Him with our lives, with our marriages, with our hopes, with our dreams, with our sexuality. We're not crazy 
We see three things about Jesus. One, that Jesus brings fulfillment. If you're taking notes, these are the three things you'll write down. Two, Jesus brings forgiveness. And three, Jesus brings the felt presence of God. It's grasping after another F here. You'll see what I mean. Fulfillment, forgiveness, and the felt presence of God. Let's dive in. I think one of the things that ends up making us feel a little bit disoriented with the, the claims of uh, being a part of the church is, I mean, we, if we look over church history, I mean, 2,000 years uh, is not that long of a time, a long of a period of time. And I think in the same way in the early community in Matthew, as they, as they feel like they're increasingly viewed as a sect or as a cult that's kind of a branch that's broken off of this, this long stream of Jewish history. I think sometimes like the newness is exciting, but I think other times for this Christian community, the newness felt more like novelty and it was concerning to them. Right? If this is a new thing that God's doing, do I really want to be a part of it? Right? I kind of want to be a part of something that God's been doing for thousands of years. I don't really want to be the guy that claims to be the new thing. And so this novelty was a little bit disarming. But what we see in Matthew chapter 1, the way he begins the book of Matthew, is, is he shows the way Jesus, the Jesus himself, Jesus is is the fulfillment of this story that God has been telling since the creation of the world. There, there, the, the gospel according to Matthew begins with a genealogy. It, be, it begins with what's referred to as a record of beginnings. The same way the Bible itself begins. And, and right away, Jesus is referred to three times in the first 17 verses as the Christ. Look at verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus. It's not just His last name, right? Jesus the Messiah. Jesus the Christ. Jesus the Anointed One is what that word means. He's the Son of David. The Son of Abraham. Then look at verse 16. Or, excuse me, uh, yes, verse 16. He's ending off this, this genealogy, and he says, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Messiah. He's the promised one. Then in verse 17, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to, not Jesus, but to the Christ, 14 generations. Right from the beginning, he's saying, yes, there is this new beginning. There is this record of a new beginning that's taking place, not with the creation of the world, but with the creation of a new humanity in Jesus. But this new humanity in Jesus is the fulfillment. He's the promised one. He's the one who was promised all along in Israel's history. And so he's wanting to root these believers in Jesus. He's saying, you know, you haven't been broken off from your, your Jewish ancestry, from your Jewish culture, from your Jewish heritage. You, you actually, in Jesus, Jew and Gentile, are the fulfillment of all that God has been doing since the beginning of the world, specifically here since the calling of Abraham. 
you, Christian, are a son of Abraham. You are an inheritor of the promises of blessing that God promised to Abraham. You are in the Messiah who is the promised king to come from the line of David. You're in him. He's the the climax of that story. This isn't what's going on here in the church over these last 2,000 years is not parenthetical. It's not anecdotal. It's not parochial. It's not over here, right? It is right in the center of what God has been doing all along through human history. And it looked obscure at the time. This guy was born in Nazareth, in the backwoods, in the, in the Buckley of, sorry, sorry Buckley folks, Enumclaw, come on. I mean, Roy, we had some people move to Roy recently. I mean, he, he was born out there. But this is, this is actually what God's up to. God is, this is not a side note. This is the very center of what God has been up to all along since the creation of the heavens and the earth in the beginning. Jesus brings fulfillment because He's the Christ. He's the Christ. He is that child born of a virgin, spoken of in Isaiah 7 and spoken of so confidently in Isaiah 9. Did you know that Jesus is, is the That Messiah, I love the language here. I've got a flip here. In Isaiah 9, if you have your Bibles, you want to flip with me, you can just hear me say it as well. But I love this. Isaiah 9, 6. This this is Him. For, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the, the government shall be upon His shoulder. And His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Did you know this is true? This whole Jesus thing that you got involved in? This, ch- this weird little church on the corner of 84th and Vickery that's connected to this Jesus? Do you know that it says this of Him? That of, of the increase of His government... And of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. This isn't a side note in human history. This Jesus is is this child born to a virgin. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. No matter how small and insignificant and obscure his government looks right now. Friends, what Matthew's saying is that this is him. He's the promised one. He brings fulfillment. God brings fulfillment through him. Second, friends, even though. This feels new. It feels novel. Jesus' roots go deep. His roots are ancient. Second here, uh, God brings about 
forgiveness through Jesus. He's not only referred to in Matthew 1 as the Christ, he's also referred to as Savior. Look with me at verse 20. We see Joseph uh, find out that his fiance is prego, right? She's, she's, she's with child. And he's thinking, we've done a pretty good job. Uh, I don't know how this has happened, but my wife is pregnant and uh, I love her. And so I'm, I'm going to divorce her quietly, which then you had to do even with a fiance. You had to break things off in a very formal way in that culture. But he wanted to do it quietly because he was a righteous man. So, Matthew 1, verse 20, listen to what the angel says to Joseph as he's, he's probably freaking out, right? Uh, not only is he, he maybe worried about his reputation, but he loves this gal and she's pregnant. What happened? Verse 20, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. His name is Jesus. He's not only the Messiah, but he's also the Savior. The Savior. One of the things that's disorienting about Christianity at times or about the church is not only, maybe for this Matthean community, was its novelty, its seeming novelty, uh, but also its, its weakness. I mean, from the very beginning, Christianity has been characterized by weakness. I mean, think about it. The, the leader of Christianity was rejected by its people. He was crucified in weakness. The, the, the beginning, the origin of Christianity started out with apparent failure. That's the way the movement began. And that's the way it's really been all throughout church history. The church somehow advances not through, not through governmental power, but through weakness through suffering, through seeming failure. And so what we see here right from the beginning is that the the weakness that's associated with Christianity isn't its failure, but it's its triumph. It's God's victory. God actually, through the weakness of Jesus, through the apparent failure of Jesus on the cross, what, 23, 24, 25 chapters later, is the way in which God provides forgiveness for sins. Jesus, in His death and resurrection, provides atonement for our sins. And so what we have in Jesus, though there's apparent weakness, though there's apparent failure, is actually God's triumph. God's save. Jesus is, is not just the the long and expected, exalted Messiah, but He's come in weakness to save. That is, He's come to save sinners like you and me. He's come to save people that need saving. And He's not come for the righteous or those who don't need Him, but for every person in this room who feels their need for Him, their, their sense of things aren't right in my life. I'm not the solution to me. 
Jesus comes, and Matthew here presents him right from the very beginning. His, listen to what his name is. His name is God saves. Jesus is his name. Not given by Joseph, but by the angel. This is whom he is. And so what that means, church, is that the the church itself is supposed to be a place where we enjoy the forgiveness of sins. It's not just a place where we announce the forgiveness of sins through Jesus, but the church is supposed to be a community where where we actually revel in the forgiveness of sins, where we enjoy the forgiveness of sins, where we remind each other of this new life that we have where God is not holding our sins against us, but God is for you and not against you. It's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper. It's why we remind each other every week that Jesus' righteousness is your righteousness. And we just get to revel in that. So what that also means for the church is that uh, we, we, we only enjoy the forgiveness of sins to the degree that we're honest about our need for it. And so the church becomes this wonderfully, counterculturally honest community where we, we talk more about our, our need for saving. We talk more about our brokenness. We talk more about the shame that we still feel than about how good we have things going in our life. I mean, the church is the one place where we can come and say, I don't have it all together. I'm struggling. I know Christians on the other side of the world are being persecuted for their faith, but I'm having a really hard time with my family or with my job right now. It's just a safe place to be honest. It's a safe place to be fragile. It's a safe place to uh, be in need in all the varieties of ways that we experience need as humans. The church is the place where we experience forgiveness. Matthew believes that because he describes Jesus here as Savior. He reminds this church that from the very beginning, before Jesus was even born, he's disclosed he's declared by God to be the one who saves his people from their sins and if that weren't enough as we look over the genealogy as we study carefully all the names that are actually in this genealogy what we see is this is not a list of righteous saints leading up to the culmination of the quintessential righteous person in Jesus no this is a this is a list of very broken, very sinful rebels. (laughs) This is a list beginning with Abraham, the liar, that moves through to David, the adulterer and the murderer. It moves all the way through to kings that were unfaithful. And it culminates with Jesus. It includes those who in this day were thought to be outsiders. Why are there four women? And all of them believed to be uh, uh, Gentile women, even included in this. What's, what's this saying about Jesus? God sent His Son among very fallen, very weak, all kinds of folks that had all the privileges of divine revelation but ran out of excuses for their unfaithfulness. And it's through them 
that the Messiah is born. It's through them that a Savior comes. He comes to a sinful people. So that's second. Jesus brings fulfillment. He brings forgiveness. And third, he brings the felt presence of God. He is described as Emmanuel. Look at verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. It's it's all too easy to look at the history of the church and see the obvious humanity of the institution of the church, as as I've mentioned already. Uh, But what Matthew does here is he points to um, the divinity of Jesus. What he's saying here is that, hey, it'd be one thing to kind of hitch your wagon to this new community of believers if this was started by a man, by just a mere man. We don't want to be a part of that. No one wants to be that crazy guy that's a part of the cult, right? But what Matthew's trying to show them from this narrative, from, from Jesus being Emmanuel, God with us, is that though Jesus is fully human, He is also fully divine. Though He was conceived in Mary two times, the text says He was conceived from the Holy Spirit. So I... I, I as we read this 2,000 years later, friends, it's, it's as though God is saying to us, it's as though God is assuring our hearts as we're, as we're frenetic, distracted, uh, uh, intimidated by the claims that the church makes about itself. And it is, it's as if He grabs us by the face and He says, this thing, this community rallied around Jesus is from Me. It is it is deeply a part of humanity, but it is not of humanity. This is from the Holy Spirit, what's happening through Jesus. And so that's reassuring to us. That's reassuring when we wonder whether, whether this is all just a bunch of humans seeking after some very human enterprise. No, in Jesus, as Paul said, all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. In, in Jesus... And in Jesus alone, we experience God Himself. As we sing about Jesus on a Sunday morning, as we read over the next year and a half about the life of Jesus through the Gospel of Matthew, the death of Jesus and His resurrection, we're we're going to experience together God with us. God with us through Jesus. So that's because in Jesus, God brings about fulfillment. God brings about forgiveness of sins. And God, God allows us to experience the felt presence of God through Jesus, His Son. If you flip over to Ephesians chapter 3, there's a really interesting parallel here between what's going on in the beginning of Matthew and what's going on in, in, uh, in Ephesus. Paul writes in the the middle of chapter 3, he's saying that, that through the church, the God who created everything, in verse 10, has revealed His manifold wisdom. The manifold wisdom is being revealed through the church, 
So, and it's being revealed to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Okay, so what Paul's doing in Ephesians 3 is saying, guys, the church is really significant. This, these guys are losing heart because Paul, it looks like his whole life is one of failure right then. He's being tortured. He's being imprisoned. He's suffering right now. He's writing them as he's suffering. And he's saying, I don't want you to lose heart because it looks like we're losing this battle. God, through the church, is actually displaying his manifold wisdom through to the spiritual powers that are watching and that think they have control over this world. God's communicating something about himself and his glory and his wisdom through the church as we trust in Jesus. This is crazy. And what he, what he says to them in verse 13, so I ask you not to lose heart. Consider, verse 11, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized, he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. God's doing something cosmic through the church as we trust in Jesus. Somehow his eternal purposes were realized in Christ and you're not crazy to believe it. So no matter how weak and obscure the church feels, don't lose heart, Paul says. Now, flip back over to Matthew with me, and let's consider again how chapter 1 ends. There's a genealogy about the beginnings, the origins, the ancestry, the lineage of Jesus. Jesus is connected to Abraham and to David. And then all of a sudden, he's connected to this Joseph guy. This Joseph guy. Now, I think when, as we're, as we're uh, going through the Gospels, there's, there's characters kind of presented to us in every scene. And we're supposed to try to figure out who do we identify most deeply with? Which character can I like walk in the shoes of? And now think about this. Joseph, in many senses, was uh, uh, very much symbolic of the, the Matthean community, of just the, the community of Christian believers, right? Because here's this guy who is thoroughly Jewish, in fact, he's, he's referred to as a just man, and he's referred to as a son of David. He's not just Jewish, he's a part of the royal line. And then all of a sudden, his world gets blown up. <laughs> his wife becomes pregnant by the Holy Spirit, and an angel starts speaking to him about the identity of Jesus. His world gets invaded by this new development this new divine development. And he knows that this whole development regarding Jesus, if he goes with it, that is, if he stays with his pregnant wife, people are going to do the math. People are going to think he's crazy. And so this, the, the dilemma that Joseph have, has is the very dilemma that the early Christians had. 
I'm afraid of what's going to happen if I, if I really believe God's revelation about Jesus. I'm afraid of what's going to happen to me. I don't, what do I do? Do I stay with Mary? Or do I, do I quietly just kind of move in another direction? We, ha- we all have that choice, right, that even we're making right now. What do I do? The, the, the culture is going to think I'm a cuckold by staying with her. The culture is going to think I'm, I'm, cr- I'm going to be rejected by everything that seems most familiar to me if I stay with her and name this baby Jesus like the angel told me to. What do I do? I think what Matthew's doing is he's saying from the very beginning, friends, we've, God has revealed his son as the fulfillment and savior and Emmanuel, as the, as the, as the bringer of fulfillment, as the bringer of forgiveness, as the bringer of the felt presence of God. And we have a way forward here. Let's do what Joseph did. What, what did the angel say to Joseph in a, in a situation that's very similar to ours? What did, he, what did the angel say to him? Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. This is from the Holy Spirit. And then what did Joseph do? Verse 24, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Joseph was counting the cost. He knew what it would mean to identify with this revelation about who Jesus was. He was obedient. He was obedient to that revelation about Jesus being the Savior, about Jesus being the Christ, about Jesus being Emmanuel. He just believed it. He said, I'm going to let the chips fall where they may. And he moved forward. And I think with God's help, we can too. Amen? Let's pray. Father, help us. Help us. Love your son. Help us see him, Lord. There's no help needed, Lord. If we just, if we just see him in all his glory, if, we, if the eyes of our heart, by the, by the power of the Holy Spirit, are opened to the glory of Jesus, Lord, we will, like Joseph, be obedient to this revelation. We will, we will just walk with, in a strange way without fear in a culture that thinks we're crazy. We're crazy for hitching our wagon to this Jesus thing. We're crazy for being on mission for Jesus. We're crazy for experiencing family in the church. Lord, we love you. We ask for all of your blessing to be on the message of Jesus, your son. In his name we pray. Amen.